You are listening to Episode 9. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know, the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their leadership to the next level. Learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Today's podcast will be of particular interest to listeners looking to a leadership career within and beyond the armed forces, as well as leaders looking to pivot. My guest today is Garth Callender. If this name sounds familiar to you, you may have seen Garth across the mainstream and social media, or you may have read his book, After the Blast. Garth Callender has travelled a remarkable road, and at the heart of his story is years of formal military training and operational experience in war zones. Garth was the first serious Australian casualty of the war in Iraq, after his armed vehicle was targeted by an insurgent bomb attack. What is remarkable about Garth's story is his ability to overcome both the physical and physiological trauma and redeploy to war zones again and again. After leaving the regular army, Garth wrote the award-winning After the Blast, which chronicled the events in his deployments that make them anything but ordinary. From his highly successful 20-plus year military career, Garth has gone on to excel in both public and private sector roles. He is sought after as a management consultant and non-executive director. His military and business background give him credibility and insights that are rarely found in corporate Australia. Welcome, Garth. Good afternoon, Penny. Thanks very much for the invitation. Lovely to have you here. Garth, I begin each interview with this question, why does leadership matter? Given our lives continue to be marked by the uncharted territory of COVID, could you respond in the context of COVID? Hi, Penny. Yeah, I have to catch myself because I'll start ranting with this sort of stuff because I think leadership is so important right now, Um, you know, more so than a lot of other times in history. I won't say all other times in history, a lot of other times in history. You know, fundamentally being able to influence others to do things that uh, maybe otherwise they wouldn't uh, ordinarily do. Uh, And we've seen that in the range of ways that different governments across the globe and the the difference in governments within Australia, the, the state and federal governments, and their different approaches to leadership and getting people to do things, which otherwise they wouldn't otherwise do. Everything from providing that role model um, to being frank and open with the general population and dealing with what is in essence in a lot of countries some real tragic events and being able to um, lead lead the population um, as they they seek to recover from this. The, The corporate world and the business world, you know, it's the ability to to react to the situation, to to lead and protect your organisation, um, and 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 subtly as well in this environment, it's being able to capitalise on those opportunities as well. Um, so be able to take that step back from the situation, and as a leader, being able to take that deep deep breath and make clear-eyed decisions uh, to protect your organisation, your people, your stakeholders. I guess there's layers and layers of complexities that that are new because none of us have actually lived through a pandemic before. It's so complex. And I, I deal with a lot of businesses right now who, who, you know, last year had risk registers which had these single line items throughout it um, which were about supply chain issues and which were about staffing issues and with, with about, you know, um, uh, legislation changes and uh, all these all these things which would impact on their business, but COVID right now 
is overlaying all these risks on top of each other, all playing out at once. So it, it, it really, we would struggle to find it more complex, yes. I guess in our conversation, we're going to cover off on some of the complexities, the real complexities of leadership when we talk about leadership um, in the face of a war zone. But right now, what I'd like to do is to understand your decision as a school leaver to join the armed forces. What were your drivers and where did you vision yourself as you pulled on that uniform of the Australian Army? And did you already have Duntroon in your sights? So, look to, to be to be frank with that, I I joined the army in the mid nineties, and I joined at a time where you could sign up for a year. So, really, the the the, the young bloke I was then was really a directionless um, nineteen year old, in fact, eighteen year old, who um, really didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. I definitely didn't see a long term career in the military. I just thought it would be an interesting opportunity to see what the army's like um, for 12 months and, uh, and yeah, you know, 17 years later I was still there. Um, and I guess, you know, to, to probably to better answer your question, maybe if we, we fast forward through probably to September 11, 2001, which was really, I guess, when the world got serious for my generation and, and that's when I, you know, I, I'd been a soldier I'd done that for a few years and then I'd shown some leadership potential and been accepted into Duntroon and I, I was in my last six months at the college and, in fact, probably the last three months at, at Royal Military College Duntroon when those planes flew into the towers and I and I remember thinking this this is going to shape my career um, and it absolutely did, you know, two, two trips to Baghdad and, and, and a deployment to Afghanistan I'm sure wouldn't have happened if that event hadn't occurred. We all have very different and very unique and individual responses to 9-11, but yours clearly was very influenced by the fact that you were at Duntroon, you were about to emerge as a fully trained leader in, in the armed forces, the Australian armed forces. So what was that like for you? What, what actually were the, were the things that went through your head um, around where you saw the world going at that point in time. Going to continue to be frank here. I, I was, I was a pretty happy-go-lucky soldier, and I was a pretty, you know, happy-go-lucky um, cadet when I was at the Royal Military College as well. To the point where I, I bumbled my way through is probably um, putting it lightly. Um, but I guess that event really was a had a, a sobering effect on me because I said, look, the, the world is going to change from this and I'm going into a leadership role where I'll be commanding soldiers. I don't know what we'll be doing, but this event is serious and the world has just suddenly overnight got really serious for me. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was that, that slap around which I, which I needed uh, and, yeah, it's really, I guess, gave me focus on what really my my career ahead of me had had in store. So if we go ahead to 2004, which was the date of your first deployment to Iraq when that war was raging, one that would influence and feature in your career trajectory that year, can you take us through that first deployment? Yeah, uh, and it's... 
uh, it's you know it's good to be talking about this because to be honest, I've, I've particularly in the last twenty four hours, I've been reflecting on this quite a lot because it's it's sixteen years. Yesterday was sixteen years to the day from from this event, um, but of, of of getting getting injured overseas. Um, but but to, to to you know to set the scene, so I was been out of Duntroon two years. I was a young lieutenant in uh, the cavalry, and I took a group of about twenty five soldiers to Baghdad, um, uh, running the the armoured vehicle troops. So seven eighteen wheeled thirteen ton armoured vehicles, which were used for um, protecting the diplomatic staff, so the Australian Embassy staff in Baghdad, and allowing them to carry out the diplomatic function in the sort of greater Baghdad area. Um, so we'd been through quite a lot of training. We'd been through months of training on top of our normal um, conventional sort of style training. We'd done Baghdad-specific training and we deployed in, in early September. Um, you know, very long, busy days in a, in a city of seven million people all just trying to get on with their lives while a civil war really raged around them. Um, and then, and, and my guys were out on the road sort of all day, every day. And, and if you look at it from a, from a risk perspective, we were, we were exposing ourselves to a lot of risk. We, we knew that basically there were bombs going off all day, every day, targeting um, coalition patrols like us, um, Iraqi army and police patrols, private security patrols, uh, killing hundreds of people, um, in fact, thousands of people, and we would have multiple events like this every day where, where, where soldiers were being killed, but also there was a lot of innocent people being killed in this as well. So we were operating in that um, environment where the likelihood of an event was very high. These events were happening every day, and the consequence, which we, we saw firsthand numerous times, um, was catastrophic. You know, we knew if a bomb went off near us, um, we would likely be very badly injured or killed, um, as well as the diplomats who are there to protect. So, uh, you know, the, and we, maybe we can talk about this as, as we progress, but, you know, from that risk perspective, think, things were, we were operating in the red and I guess two months into the deployment, our, uh, you know, our luck really ran out and, and 8 o'clock in the morning on the, on the 25th of October, uh, I, was, I was commanding a two-vehicle patrol uh, into the heart of... of from our forward operating base into the, the heart of Baghdad to um, drop off a few people, pick a few people up, and then um, a few more tasks for that day. Um, but we've got about 600 metres from the front gate of our compound uh, and a, a, a car that had been the previous night parked on the side of the road had uh, an explosive, probably some artillery rounds in the back, uh, hooked up to a radio-controlled uh, detonator or trigger, um, and, and as we drove past that car, um, it was likely an insurgent um, trigger man was, was watching down on us um, from one of the, the high-rise apartment blocks around the area and, uh, and detonated the devices we went past. So it, was, um, it went off probably within about five metres of me and the, the vehicle. There were, there were three of us in the vehicle. And I, 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 as the commander, I was standing up. I had my head and neck exposed. And um, and copped a fair degree of the heat and the blast uh, from from that bomb. Um, now I could I could probably rabbit on all afternoon about this, um, but there was some really um, 
it, it's a it's a defining point of my career. Absolutely, it, it gave me a a perspective on risk. It gave me a perspective on leadership, um, and it it really uh, you know what what we saw that day. I was badly injured, but but actually, if you take that step back, there were at least three people killed in that bomb blast, and they were locals in the area. Two of them were children. Um, that, in fact, the children that, that used to wave at us every time we drive past. Um, and you know, if, I guess if we're talking about September 11 being one of those moments of clarity um, in in what the world had in store, that event gave me uh, an understanding of of the world um, and the way different people operate. You know, I, I I probably went over there a bit undercooked in my my thoughts on the adversaries who are facing. Um, you know, I grew up in suburban Sydney, beautiful, peaceful Australia. Um, anyone with any kind of homicidal tendencies is, has probably already been locked up. Um, whereas we went into a war zone where at the time they talk about the, the fact that there were anything up to 40,000 active insurgents and it really didn't, it really didn't click in my mind, firstly, that, that there were 40,000 people who would go out of their way to kill me, um, but also uh, that, 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 that the, the idea that, that a lot of, I guess probably a lot of young men have, um, which is that, that even when bad things are happening, they don't think that bad things are going to happen to them. Um, so it was, you know, it gave me a real um, opportunity to to grow and learn. You know, it's definitely not how I'd recommend that other people do it, but it, uh, it was definitely one of those opportunities for me. Can I just ask you about your injuries and your recovery? I understand you were the first Australian um, soldier to be injured in the Iraq or seriously injured. I've got to be honest, I, I was extraordinarily lucky. You know, I, I, I did work after this in, in the, the counter-improvised explosive ice stra- space at the strategic level and I, I saw a lot of reports and, and, and even Afghanistan went to a lot of sites where um, s- there'd been um, smaller bombs, people had been further away and they'd, they'd f- fared far worse than I did. So I was, I was extraordinarily lucky. Um, uh, I, I had um, second-degree burns to my face and neck and I had some um, fragmentation wounds. Um, uh, I guess the most, the most immediately life-threatening for me was I got a nick in the side of my neck from a, from a, a piece of fragmentation which nicked my artery and I, I had a, um, uh, w- within a few minutes, sort of had a, a grapefruit-sized lump in the size, side of my neck and they were really worried that was going to cut off the blood supply to my brain. Um, so that got me. I, I, when I was first operated on in Baghdad, that that that's what they were working to to fix or prevent. Um, but I also, I guess, in longer term, more dangerous injury for me was uh, I had fragmentation wounds into basically the bridge of my nose and and, and along the my eyebrow line. Um, the one in the bridge of my nose, the fragmentation actually fractured the bone in between my sinus and my brain, and they were quite worried about. Um, getting infection into my brain from that, um, but luckily that that never played out. Um, but but yeah, sort of uh, uh, you know for me, it's something you know I, I was I guess to think back I was quite stoic about it. I, 
that there was nothing I could do about it. So I got on with it. The, the, the biggest issues I think were, were from my wife and my family um, having to having to live with that uh, the prognosis and the unknown um, condition that I that I would end up in, whether this would be serious permanent injuries or something I would recover from. And and again, luckily I I've you know I've got a few little quirks, but there's nothing which slows me down um, from 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 that, uh, that those injuries. And you didn't actually um, then repatriate yourself out of the armed forces. You returned to Baghdad two years later uh, in 2006. Um, you were at a, um, operating at a higher higher level and you had more responsibility. So there's, there's a number of questions I want to ask, but I'm interested in what changes you'd observed in the city in the period between your first deployment and um, injury and your return in 2006. So how had the first deployment and your injury and subsequent time away from the war zone shaped your leadership insights as you re-entered that zone two years later? Uh, yeah, well, I, I guess from, a, from an environment perspective, Baghdad had actually changed significantly. Um, I, as I said at the start, it was in 2004. It was a, it was a, a capital city, the capital city of Iraq, um, which was a functioning capital city. Uh, and people, you know, the seven million occupants were all just trying to get on with their lives. Um, when I went back in 2006, that had changed. So about a million people had fled the city, and I I got the the feeling that it was really a city under siege. They they'd been at uh, you know, they had hundreds of thousands of coalition forces in the country. They had, um, you know, this this uh, Sunni-Shia Sunni ongoing violence, which was widespread and deadly. Um, they were getting fed, um, the, the Shia in particular, getting fed some very sophisticated weapons out of Iran. Uh, and um, there was this real lawlessness and, and disorder created by... Uh, you know, a lot of they talked about the the debathification, so the the removal of the the leadership of the country who were affiliated with Saddam Hussein. So it was a country which which really was struggling to keep. In fact, they they weren't keeping things under control. Um, so and people really, uh, like I said, you know, they they were living in in siege like conditions. So they they really didn't want to leave their house unless they absolutely had to. So it was it was quite tragic to see that change, but it was in other ways it was kind of inevitable. Um, to answer your question about, I guess, the, the, what I'd seen in the leadership piece, um, I, I said earlier that that I that we were operating at a what I'd considered a high risk or even extreme risk level. Um, back in 2004, and this is—I no, I don't say that in a way that I'm having a gripe of of anyone in the command structure. It's just the way we were operating back then. We were we were maturing as an organisation. Australia hadn't operated in a, in a in an area like that probably since Somalia, and then before that, uh, Vietnam. Uh, so we we were really just coming to terms with with the way we were operating. There wasn't a risk culture. Um, and, and whilst I felt we were operating at a, a very high risk in 2004, when I went back in 2006, there'd been a lot of things p- 
put in place to control those risks. So um, rather, we, we'd moved out outside what they called the red zone, which was um, out, out basically living amongst the population. We'd moved into a large um, uh, US base uh, in an area called the international zone, which is basically just a walled-off portion of the city um, where en- entry and exit was highly controlled uh, and it meant you're a lot safer from things like like um, bombs and and shootings. Um, so that in a lot of ways controlled the risk, but but I guess more so whilst in 2004 my guys had been out on the road all day every day, in 2006 to go out on the road to leave the international zone was a delib- required a deliberate planning activity. So we would look at all aspects of that task, um, reviewing it for, you know, the necessity of it, wh- why we were doing it, but also then considering what the enemy trends were, uh, the locations we were going to, how long we'll be there, the routes we could use, the formations we could use, all these um, ended up being extremely complex planning tasks um, just to leave just to, just to carry out our function of, of, of escorting the diplomats um, around the city. Uh, and what that means is we could minimise and control the risk down to the lowest possible level. Um, and, again, that was, for me, that was an incredible insight into uh, developing a risk culture and risk management because that's exactly what we are doing. And that, of course, plays out in the next step you talk into a further deployment, this time in, in Afghanistan. I understand this was driven by your experience of the growing threat that technically advanced enemy improvised explosive devices posed and, and other, uh, other such items <laughs> posed to the safety and security of our forces. So um, can you talk about the deployment in Afghanistan and all of the learnings that you brought through from your lived experience as um, in two deployments in Iraq. Yeah, um, yeah, and it was a, it was a, it was a one of those opportunities that you know it doesn't happen that often in your life, but it probably gets said too often. It was just one of those things I could not, you know, when the opportunity came up, it was a deployment I, I couldn't say no to. Um, I guess the previous two deployments, I'd been young and excited about the adventure of going overseas, um, but I was. At this stage, I was in my th- early 30s. I had a young daughter. Um, I, I really wasn't. I, I, the, the excitement of deploying overseas um, had kind of left me. Um, but I, I had moved on from, from those two, two tasks in, in Baghdad. I'd spent a lot of time training soldiers about to go overseas um, to Iraq uh, and I had worked in the strategic realm, um, the counter-ID realm, so looking at, what training the defence force needed to do to to minimise the chance of of um, getting injured, um, what equipment we could we could bring into service um, to best protect our people, um, and and how we shift the thinking around how we protect ourselves. Uh, and at that stage, I'd also got this incredible insight into what they call technical intelligence, so understanding. Um, how bombs are put together, uh, understanding how you can learn so much about uh, a, a bomb maker and a insurgent bomb in place so by using techniques which were first adopted really by by um, 
the FBI in the US tracking down serial killers, which sounds crazy, but that's in essence what they were. If you if you start understanding people's movements and you understand um, their routine and understand, um, you know, for for insurgent bombing, is understand their supply chain, so understand where they get their equipment from. Um, suddenly it really narrows down the group of people who you're looking at. Uh, so I, I, I got an insight into that and then this opportunity came up to run what they call a weapons intelligence team in Afghanistan, um, which was going out doing post-blast analysis from bomb blasts, um, reverse engineering what was left behind to understand everything about the device, but then more so understand you know, what the what the insurgent was trying to achieve with the bomb, what... what uh, um, the, the the victims or or the whoever the targets were of that bomb, what they were doing, um, what the components were, and what we knew about those components, um, even down to biometrics, what fingerprints had been left on it, things like that, and then feeding that into the broader intelligence picture. And you know, suddenly, if you overlay everything else, you understand about that patch of dirt and about that fingerprint and about the component, suddenly you get really smart really quickly about these insurgent bomb makers. So I did, I did that work, which was, um, which was truly extraordinary work, and, and, I, and I feel really privileged for being able to do that. I, I, I guess one of the challenges for me was it was really early days of this capability in the Australian Defence Force. The US and the UK had been doing it a bit longer than us, um, you know, the UK had understood this from years fighting the IRA, um, who did use in, um, improvised explosive devices. So they'd really got smart about this. Um, the US had really picked up on it during Iraq, and uh, Australia had had really seen a few incidents which indicated that we really needed to get smart about it if we're going to do everything we possibly can to protect our people. Uh, so, so I. It, it, like I said, it was early days of this capability, so a lot of what I was doing was getting the commanders who we were supporting, the guys who were operating out in the field, to understand why, you know, when a bomb went off, the next thing they're going to see is, is me and my team getting helicoptered in, why they need to spend an extra two hours there, um, you know, creating, you know, you know, leaving themselves vulnerable to further attack so we can do that post-blast work and then being able to take what we learn about the device and tell them what the enemy's using against them and helping them work out tactics and things like that. So it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity. And I honestly, you know, whilst I didn't, wasn't that excited about deploying at the end of the nine months over there, we, me and my, you know, it's a small team of four of us, we left um, knowing, very comfortably knowing that we'd you know, had the privilege of saving lives, be it coalition lives, Australian lives, but but also um, local Afghan lives as well. So it was it was really quite an amazing experience. So that's a legacy that you've left that keeps paying forward as as people in the future build on that knowledge base. Yeah, and I still I still um, every now and then to get get asked to come in and speak to defence groups about even the intelligence community about. The um, the genesis of the technical intelligence um, within the defence force, and say you know this, here's here's where we were, here's what we knew, here were the challenges that we faced, and and here's how we overcame them. So yeah, um, absolutely. So it's interesting you made a decision to leave the regular armed forces after your Afghanistan deployment, having served for twenty years. I'm interested to understand what drove your decision to pivot. 
And where did you decide to take your leadership career and did you have a transition plan? <laughs> um, yeah, good question. So um, I guess, first of all, the reasons, there, are, there were plenty of reasons for me to leave. Um, I, I, I love the role. I love being in defence. But I, at that stage, I then had two children, two little girls. I've, now, I've got a third now, but at that stage, I had two little girls. And my eldest, Eva, was five. She'd moved house five times and I'd been away for years of her life. Um, and it just wasn't, it wasn't fair on, on her, on my wife. And I, I didn't want to do that with Zoe as well, my second daughter. Um, and so, so that was, that was, um, somewhat easy. Uh, And I guess the other piece as well was that defense has, particularly the army has pretty clearly defined career paths and you do a minimum time in rank before you can move on to the next rank and get more responsibility. Um, and I, I started to get a feeling that I was a passenger in my own career, which didn't really sit well with me. So they were probably the two big, the two big reasons, um, for me to leave. Um, your second point about my career plan, my, my transition plan, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I sometimes feel like I'm the that that example of what not to do in your career. Um, I and and I went on to work in in the veteran employment transition space um, after this, but a, a lot of it was because I'd made so many silly decisions myself. Um, I'd I, I was finishing off a bit of uni work, had a few subjects to do. I had a lot of long service leave up my sleeve, and I thought I'll I'll, I'll cut here. Well, we'll move um, to to a, we had a, a house down on the south coast in New South Wales. We'll move down there. I'll spend six months finishing off a bit of study and working out where I'm going to be in the world, have a bit of relax from coming from some really high-tempo jobs, you know, spend a bit more time with the kids um, and, yeah, just take it step by step. So the way that played out was I spent about two weeks in my back room tapping away on the computer, going slightly stir-crazy, um, going from this high-tempo job to the to the listening to the crickets chirp basically, um, and not only that, because I didn't have a plan of what I was going to do next. Rather enjoy this this period of of long service leave that I had. I spent the entire time worrying about what the job I was going to be doing at the end of it all. It all fell into place um, as as things have a tendency to do. But there were times where I was just really. Um, all consumed by this, this dread of what, what, what have I done and what am I going to be doing next? Uh, so, yeah, like I said, I, I often use it as, as here are the lessons I learned from doing it all wrong. So at the end of our conversation today, I hope you'll share some of those, uh, those valuable lessons. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you um, you did some work for the New South Wales government in the Veterans Employment Program. What did that in- involve? Yeah, well, you know, like I said, I, 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 I left defence and when one thing which became really apparent to me when I started looking for jobs was that civilian employers really had very little understanding of the military, what they do. You know, there's in a lot of, and I, I don't want to, generalise too much, but there 
there seems to be this very stereotypical idea of what a military person is. You know, they, they're angry and they yell and they're good at marching around with a pack on their back um, and they're, you know, honestly, I think a lot of people think you're a bit of a knucklehead. Um, no understanding of the, 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 the breadth of, sort of academic training you have just as much as any other training. Um, you know, I spoke about those, those complex planning activities um, and I was a relatively junior uh, officer and I'd been through years of formal leadership training um, as well as informal mentoring throughout my entire career. Uh, and employers didn't see that. Uh, and not only that, I saw some really high-caliber military people um, of all ranks really struggle to find jobs. And I, and I thought that was, um, you know, it, it, it really grated on me. Um, so I started making noises about that. And when my book came out, that was sort of one of the key things that I'd push around, you know, take that leap of faith, get an ex-military person in for an interview. Um, that, that's how you can support the veteran community by assisting them get to get jobs. Whilst I was making that noise, one of the, one of the New South Wales government, um, he was a, a, the chief of staff for the Minister for Veterans in, in New South Wales, rang me up out of the blue and said, hey, you're making a lot of noise about veteran employment. We've got a role starting, um, standing up and leading a veteran employment program in New South Wales government. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is and, and apply for the job, which I did, and I was selected. Uh, and it was fantastic, you know. So, so we, we really operated on in two parts. So the first was assisting military people, um, and and it was all about getting jobs in New South Wales government. So it was getting them to understand right, the range of jobs that were out there, the um, help them translate their skills. Get them to understand some of the quirks, um, and to be frank, there are there are quirks in 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 the recruitment process in in government jobs. You know, you would need to understand the transparency of the process, um, so you don't um, inadvertently um, disadvantage yourself in in that process. So there's a lot on that side, but I actually think where I spent most of my time and where I think I had the best impact was getting in the face of of potential employers. So at the, the higher le- level leadership areas, the, the departmental secretaries and, and DEPSECs um, and, and then recruitment managers and, and getting them to understand uh, what, what the typical person from the military is, what their training's been, helping them to understand the military rank structure and what a person of a certain rank brings to the party and also what a what the equ- equivalent is in New South Wales government to what a rank is in the military. So if you talk about, um, if you talk, you know, if I'm talking to a secretary um, or a deputy secretary, I'm saying, you know, you're really, you have equivalent responsibility to a general in, in the military, um, which often departmental secretaries really liked hearing. Um, but, you know, talk about, you know, you work at a strategic level. You, under, you, you know, you take decisions from government and you turn them into policy and you enact them on the ground. You know, the generals do the same thing. Um, uh, and, you know, you resource it, you make sure it's, it's uh, appropriate, sustainable, uh, and, and you, you execute it, basically. You make it, make it happen. Um, all, all the way down to, you know, what, what, a, what a mid-ranking junior officer does how, uh, and how that relates to a public 
public sector role, what, what a warrant officer, a non-commissioned officer, what their job's like, you know, this, this leadership, this, um, this uh, being able to, you know, run large groups, under, understand, understand strategy and operationalise on the ground and then, and then talk about soldiers uh, and the skills, you know, at your average you know, four to four to six year soldier would have, and and how um, how transferable those skills are to to government. So I, I think that second point about engaging with employers in government, um, and and I was lucky, I, I got to um, expand that and talk to a lot in in the private sector as well. And I think that got a lot more traction than anything else because there is, you know, we are. As a society, we are shaped by Hollywood um, and shaped by the media in, in what we think a, a military person is, and and generally it's not quite right. And, you know, only someone who is in the military can bridge that gap because it's the inside understanding of, of the value of all of that and how it translates in the layperson's, the civilian's world. You don't know what you don't know, and so... And it's something that took me years to understand. So it's only fair that somebody not in defence doesn't understand it. Mm. And um, what I'm interested now in talking to you about is this wonderful organisation, this company that you founded. Everything has been wrapped up into developing a leadership um, experience that is all about, I understand, um, assessing, recognising and preparing for mitigating risk. Can you talk about Mm. Trebuchet Pivot and, you know, the work that you do? Yeah, and you've said it beautifully. Um, Yeah, so, it, you know, I I said I did a a bit of work when I was in defence training leadership teams um, and I, I ended up doing that my normal day-to-day job, but then also got posted for a few years where I was specifically doing, a, you know, the, the final training of leadership teams before they went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was an incredible experience because I got um, these, well, firstly, I, get, I got to impart the lessons which I'd learned on these people, um, but also I got to see these, these, all these leadership teams in defence um, come together and we, we threw every conceivable scenario at them um, to to help them, and and there was a, an aspect of mentoring through this as well to to help them come together as leadership team to make decisions under duress, basically. And we got to see you guys do it really well. So, um, you know, leadership groups come together and just smash it and and have these these streamlined decision making processes for when it all went bad. And to be fair, we also we also saw the other end of the spectrum as well. Um, teams come in which needed more work, which needed those, that that mentoring, which needed assistance, and and we had to build them up to get ready for the war zone. And and I, I went away from from that posting with all this knowledge of of what makes a great leadership team in in a crisis. Um, and it took me a few years working in the private sector and then in the public sector to see how I could use this in in organisational leadership, um, be it be it private sector or, or or public sector. And so I really it's a, I developed these processes, and like like I said, it's really all about um, identifying and pulling apart what your risks are. Um, Linking that 
to your overarching strategy. And I think that's that's for a lot of organisations they grapple with that. And I, and I I, I often I, I like to work at the board level because it, you can set the strategy once they understand how risk processes work with them. They're great at setting the their risk tolerances, which then drive the strategy of the organisation. Um, but I guess the other half and the piece which I'm really interested in is is the piece of risk which is not talked about very much, um, which is what happens when you have all these risk processes, you you believe you controlled all your risks, but just like today in this COVID environment, you have multiple risks which are realised at once and all, you know, overlaying on top of each other. Um, so you, if you are going to do a clinical risk um, uh management process with it you'd have you know these extreme risks which which businesses haven't prepared for um and it's giving giving these leadership teams these corporate leadership teams the skills to pull apart a problem to break it down into its core pieces to be able to um uh, scenario plan what might be happening into the future, understanding what's likely going to occur, understand what what's the worst case for the organisation and then develop some strategic objectives to work towards to, to avoid those things playing out and then being able to devise action plans and, and engage with stakeholders and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's lovely to be able to take all those military skills and experience and be able to plug them into to corporate Australia, really, for for the benefit of 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 leaders being able to stick their hand up and say, "Yes, I'm prepared. Um, I, I know the processes. My team understands how we can best protect our organisation when it all starts falling apart." They're really powerful um, inputs you bring to the corporate sector, I guess, with COVID and with this very very uncertain world that we live in, with many changes both you know, political, environmental, et cetera, there's a lot more complexity around um, scenario planning and and risk um, managing than there ever was before. Yeah, there is. And I, I'm, I'm seeing it more and more. I think a lot of the traditional thinking around risk is around financial risk. And you see it so much now still, you know, you, do, you go to an organisation, you want to talk, to, you know, the board's or the organisation's risk committee and they go, hey, the audit and risk committee or the finance and risk committee. Um, uh, and that's a really interesting observation I, I, I've made over the years, which is audit and risk, um, having the same people in the room, it generally means that they're all people with that finance background. Um, so they're not necessarily a, a, a particularly diverse group. Um, and and I, I believe the best way to to develop your risk process is by tapping into a broader diverse group as you possibly can. Cognitive diversity is is the way you protect your organisation. Getting input from groups of people who all think differently is the best way to understand. You know, if you're developing scenarios, that's what you want. You want people who come in with a different background, with different viewpoints, um, and then that shows you what you might be facing. Um, Whereas, yeah, like I said, that it, it appears to be changing now. People are starting to understand that. Um, you know, it's risk isn't the realm just of the finance people. It's now those. Well, I, I'd love to see 
that when you, when you talk about risk, it's the board and its diary come together and discuss that and, and bring in those subject matter experts which can grow and build on the diversity which they've identified they're lacking within their, their group. Garth, if I were to ask you to share your top five takeaways for people on leadership journeys who are listening to this podcast, what would your top five be? Yeah, okay. Um, I I guess that, you know, num- number one for me would be, you know, to be a great leader, you need to invest in yourself and never stop, mo- never stop learning and never stop moving forward. The amount of fantastic leadership stuff which is out there on YouTube is just incredible. You know, the Simon Senex of the world and guys like that got some really great insights which you can pull apart. Um, but also, you know, spend some money yourself, go and you know, go and do some university courses, get a diploma, whatever it is, um, even if it's not leadership specific. Um, second would be um, to get serious about EQ. So get serious about emotional intelligence. Um, uh, to be a great leader, you need to have great emotional intelligence. I think that's pretty well acknowledged these days. Um, unless you can um, work with empathy and compassion um, you are not going to be able to effectively lead simply. Um, understand real risk, I think, would be my third. So, um, you know, again, my exposure and my experiences in Baghdad in 2004, um, it, again, it's not the way I recommend that other people get this experience, but maybe, again, learn from, from my experiences. Um, risk, real risk, always comes back to people. Um, at the end of the day, no matter what the outcomes is, no matter what the risk category you're working in, the end results will be how they affect people. If it's, if it's um, an impact on finances, um, it will increase stress at work. It will mean that people um, will lose jobs. It means that people, um, you know, the, the organisation will struggle and keep uh, increase stress. If you're looking at... Um, uh, say supply chain risks again. It will impact on the business operations. It will impact on people at the end. Um, stakeholders um, losing confidence in the organisation. Consumers not being able to get whatever it is that you provide. Number four, and I don't want to sound too much like I'm plugging the business here, but I think a great leader needs to understand how to make decisions under duress. Um, I think COVID has shown us that um, being a great CEO during a period of business as usual activity um, doesn't mean you're going to be a great CEO to pivot the organisation, to best protect the organisation and to capitalise on the opportunities that that presents. Um, And then the last one, you know, number five for me and the, the front page of the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald or the Age will show this pretty much every day is that as a leader, you need to calibrate your moral compass and keep it calibrated, um, making sure you don't do things which are unpaddle, unpalatable in society these days, um, you know, morally corrupt or reprehensible or even, you know, even those things which are, are walking the line of, of, of being legal and, and the regulator coming after you. Um, so, yeah, can't say that enough. Ma- making sure you are... You are uh, the right role model um, by keeping and, and, and leading the business um, 
the right way. They are five excellent leadership takeaways. Thank you so much, Garth. And what a way to what a way to wrap up our conversation today. Garth, thank you for being so generous with your insights into leadership today and for sharing your very personal experiences of active service in our armed forces. Your book, After the Blast, is a brilliant read and you have a website for listeners interested in your leadership company, Trebuchet Pivot. Uh, Links to these will be in the show notes at whatleadersknow.com. And Garth, I just want to say again, thank you. Thanks, Benny. It's been my privilege. If you would like a resource to prompt you to stretch your change muscle, or if you're looking for support to take your career to the next level, head on over to my website, whatleadersknow.com, where you'll be able to download the resource along with show notes from this episode. I look forward to your company next week. Until then, happy days and stay safe. I'm Penny Beeston, and this has been What Leaders Know.